Well, good evening. It's a little weak. We'll try again. Good evening. Much better. You know, sometimes we have plans for our lives. And sometimes God has plans for our lives that are different than the plans that we have for our lives. And therein lies the great struggle. We talked about it on Sunday, this idea of surrendering to God's will. May the Lord's will be done is how we ended our study this Sunday in the book of Acts. But this evening we're going to see in First Chronicles, in chapter 17, we're going to see that David had a desire in his heart to build the temple. To build a permanent temple for the ark, it was his heart's desire, it was his life's endeavor, it was the most important thing that he wanted to accomplish for God. However, as we'll see this evening, that was not in the cards for David. That was not God's will for David. And so many times we struggle when we realize, you know, God may be calling us to things we want to do, He may be calling us to things that we don't want to do. He may be calling us to things that are difficult, of course, impossible apart from him. And he may be calling us to things that, well, quite frankly, don't seem all that difficult. But when God calls you, all things are possible. Amen? The challenge comes in when when God is not calling us to something we want to do. Because now our flesh wants something. And it can be a good and godly thing. As I've said before, even on Wednesday evenings, I think recently, there's a difference between a good thing and a God thing. And a good thing can seem for every reason to be the right thing, but it's not because God isn't in it. So as we open our service and then we open in prayer, may we just approach tonight's scripture in chapter 17 with an open heart, an open mind, with our will surrendered to God so that we can receive God's will for our lives, and surrender when he's calling us not to do something that perhaps we really, really want to do. Lord, Heavenly Father, we submit to you our hearts. We ask that this evening in all things you would be glorified. We understand that you reign supreme over our lives, that you rule, and sometimes you overrule. And Lord, we really truly don't want to be involved in any endeavor or ministry or task that you haven't called us to be involved in. And so we need to know your will, Lord. We need to understand your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we know that comes by surrendering our hearts to you, to submit our lives to you, by being not conformed to the image of this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, we know that we need to be surrendered to you, so we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would help us, help us to have the desire, to have the desire to do your will. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 17 is an interesting chapter because what it does is it introduces us to this, to this understanding that David truly, really, truly wanted to build a house for God. And it starts in verses 1 and 2, and we get a good understanding here. When we read in chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles, verse 1, after David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. 
Nathan, Nathan, who's his counselor, Nathan, who is the prophet of the Lord, Nathan replied to David, whatever you have in your mind, do it, for God is with you. That is very, very dangerous counsel. We're about to see it wasn't God's counsel. Listen, the Lord had abundantly blessed David in so many wonderful ways. David had become king over Judah for seven and a half years. Then he had become king over all Israel and ultimately was king for an additional 33 years, in total about 40 years as king over God's people. David had conquered the city of Jerusalem. He he made Jerusalem his capital. He defeated the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. He delivered Israel from their occupation. He was a hero. He was a king who people loved and celebrated. We saw recently he, he had brought the ark back and he brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem, placed it under a tent. Now he has two worship centers, one in Gibeon and one in Jerusalem, where animals are being sacrificed. People are worshiping the Lord at the tabernacle and then under the tent where the ark was. Two separate high priests, two different groups of people. There's a lot of worship going on in God's land, in God's place, where God has called his people to be. And so that's all good. But David is sitting there in his palace, and he's convicted that his palace was so much better than the place where the Lord was being worshipped. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you have. And I'm glad to say, where we are, of course, this building, it's a beautiful sanctuary. Uh, My house doesn't look like this. (laughs) I don't have stained glass and rafters and 40 40 to 45-foot ceilings. This is a beautiful place to worship the Lord. We're very blessed. But there are many churches, and I've seen this, you know, where you know, the church is kind of run down. It's, it's fallen apart, and yet many of the people live in palaces. You know, listen, we live in a very wealthy part of a very wealthy state in a very wealthy nation. You have to understand that. How many of you guys have ever been to other states that are not as wealthy? Okay? In general. You know, I think I've been to West Virginia twice. I'm a bluegrass fan. Okay? So I can tell you, I like going to West Virginia. Simple folk, beautiful music. But I'll tell you this, that is not a wealthy state. Not in general. Of course, there are wealthy people in every state. But in general, you won't see what you see here. If you get in your car, okay, let's take it a step further. In New Jersey, if you go to some of the southern counties and the western counties and some of the northern counties, they're perfectly lovely places to live in this state. Actually, in many ways, a lot nicer than where we are, not as congested. This is the most densely populated state, and really, it's about five or six counties. The rest of the counties are not densely populated at all. But it's amazing because if you go to, let's say, Sussex County, it's beautiful, but you're not going to see the wealth in general that you see in Bergen County or Essex County. Clearly, I think that probably Bergen and Essex, maybe Passaic, are probably among the wealthiest counties in our state, in general, in general. So as I think about that, you know, you you walk around, you realize, uh, the other day I was in uh, Saddle River. It's a very wealthy town. In fact, I used to do, for an insurance company, I worked for 20 years in the corporate world, I used to do uh, catastrophe analysis. So basically... I would figure out how much risk we had in certain locations. And I used a mapping program to do this uh, many years ago now. But as I did that, we identified by zip code 
where the most amount of insurable wealth was and where the most exposure was for our insurance company. And it was amazing because, you know, zip codes like uh, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, um, they, they came right to the top. Greenwich, Connecticut, another one. It was a county. Sal knows the name of the area, but it's in Philadelphia. It's right around Philly. Not all of Philadelphia is poor because, believe me, this, this particular zip code, uh, I don't remember the name of the area, but Sal can tell you. That, that was one area. There's also an area, it might be called Lincoln Park or something around Chicago, the very wealthy area there. And it was amazing because as we put the graph up and it was colorized, as you looked around, you realize a oh, Palm Beach, you know, West Palm in Florida, the southeast coast of Florida, there's so much welfare. But then there's the rest of the country where there is wealth, but it's spread out. There's not this consolidation of wealth. And I was shocked to know that really in about five zip codes, you have so much incredible wealth. And, and again, certain areas like Southeast Florida, certain areas obviously in New York City, you'll find so much wealth there. And then the rest of our very wealthy nation doesn't have that same concentration. So we are living in one of the wealthiest places on earth. And believe it or not, even though you may be struggling, you, by compared to, to 99% of the planet out there, are wealthy, extremely wealthy. And I know that because as I have gone to places like Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and even Cuba, I've learned, or West Virginia, I've learned that there are people who have absolutely nothing. And I can tell you my first reaction, the first time we went door-to-door in El Salvador, and when I say door-to-door, I use that term loosely, and we walked into homes, and I use that term loosely, and, and there was, you know, a, 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 a dirt floor, and the woman invites us into her home, really more of a shack, and tells us that, oh, my, my baby's sleeping, uh, brand like seven days old this baby was, and here she is in a shack, living by a river with no electricity. It just, it really struck my heart. I was devastated after that trip. I came back cut to the heart. And quite frankly, embarrassed by how wealthy I am. And again, I'm not the most wealthy person that I, that, I'm, that I know. I know people who have a lot more money than I do. But I was completely almost humiliated and embarrassed by being able to come home and which car am I going to drive? My wife's or mine. Which, you know, which bed am I going to sleep in? The one in the guest room if I'm in trouble, I guess maybe. But, you know, or, or, or in, in, in my room. Or which couch or seat am I going to sit on? What am I going to make for dinner? I have choices. And I remember that feeling and it's never left me. And quite frankly, I need to go back on the mission field to be reminded again of how wealthy I am. How wealthy you are, whether you realize it or not, you are. So here's David. He's the king. Easily the most wealthy person in the kingdom, I would think it's safe to say. And he's built this palace, which is really a palace for the kings. It's a place where government takes place. It's not just where he lives. It's the seat of government. And here he is. And he says this, here I am living in a palace of cedar. Well, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. His place of worship was a tent, but he lived in a palace. Now listen, David was unwilling to live in luxury while neglecting the house of the Lord, and that is a commendable spirit. He's so convicted that his palace was better than the place where the Lord was being worshipped. 
And I don't blame him. I understand that feeling, as I've shared with you already. You know, David's greatest desire, and he tells us this in the Psalms, in Psalm 27, verse 4, his greatest desire was to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And that wasn't just him saying that. He lived it. One thing have I desired, O Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So I think it was a sincere desire on the part of David to honor God over his own comfort, convenience, and luxury. I have a question for you, and I, it's really a spiritual application of this principle. I've given you some of my own experiences, but I have a question, and I'm not going to answer it for you. I have to answer it for myself. Are we willing to settle for a substandard spiritual life in favor of a palatial personal life? If you were to describe your spiritual life, your relationship with God in terms of a palace or a shack, hopefully not, and your own personal life and comfort and convenience, what would you describe it as? Would you be living in a, in a castle, and yet your spiritual life is more of a shed? You know, I see some of these homes in my neighborhood, and I'm very fortunate. My wife and I bought a home many years ago when I was still working in the corporate world. I'm very fortunate to live in a lovely town. I have a small home, but I live in a lovely town. And there are homes where the home is beautiful, and then you see this little shed, not really a shed, it's almost like a guest house, and it looks just like the house, like they, they decorated it, it has the same siding, and you, you see the, the shed, and you see the house, and you think, oh my goodness, is that us? Is the shed representative of your spiritual life and the giant palatial home representative of your personal life? Is it out of balance? I don't know, I can't answer that for you. I was sharing on Sunday that I really feel strongly, very strongly, that we need to make sure that our priorities are in order in this regard. We, we need to make sure that the first things are first. Because it is very easy to give our hearts over to money and the luxury of time and not recognize that if you have time, you have a blessing that you can use for ministry. It's okay to have money. And it's, and it's even better to have time, if you ask me. That is opportunity to serve. By the way, if you spend less money and you don't need to make as much, you get back time. Have you ever noticed that? See, a lot of people, the problem is they have so much, they're so busy working to maintain what they have, they don't have any time. We figured that out a long time ago, my wife and I, so we tried to live below our means so that we could get what we didn't need in time back. And then we take that time and we give it to the Lord. But money's a great resource too, don't get me wrong. I don't mind having money. But if you use your money to build your palace versus invest in the kingdom of God, then if you were to describe your personal life and your spiritual life, sadly, it might be true that your, your spiritual life looks more like that shed than the palace you're living in. I thank God every day for his many blessings. I, I, I don't think anyone here should feel badly because God has blessed them with a good job and wonderful resources. If you're doing very well, wonderful. We're all doing very well by the world's comparison, but what are you doing with it? That's the real question. David wanted to make the investment in the kingdom, and so he did, or tried to. 
But, you know, it's interesting because Nathan, Nathan is an interesting person. Nathan was that guy that later on came along and convicted David of his sin, you know, his adultery and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. But at this particular moment, Nathan was willing to consent to David's desire, which was a good desire, good, not necessarily God, but good. It was a wonderful desire to build a temple, but he did so without seeking the Lord's counsel. Did you see that in verse 2? Nathan replied to David, whatever you have in your mind, do it, for God is with you. Now, that is a very dangerous way of thinking. Nathan should have known better. He didn't even check with God. Now, to David's credit, he checked with Nathan. He did. David has the right heart. Nathan is just taking it for granted, like so many of us do, that if it's something good, then God is in it. It it can be anything. Like, let's say, uh, well, I'm going on a missions trip. Oh, yeah, that may be a good thing, but it may not be a God thing for you. Oh, I'm going to serve in ministry. Well, that may not be a God thing for you. You need to make sure you know God's will. We've been talking a lot about this on Sundays and Wednesdays, really understanding and seeking God's will about relationships, about the job you take. You know, I remember one particular time, and listen, I don't want you to think I'm a hero. I'm not. I'm just saying that there was a time when I went to my boss and said, I am not a good candidate for promotion. And the reason I did it was not because I didn't want more money, not because I didn't want more responsibility necessarily. I just didn't want to work more than 40 hours a week. And the next position up the ladder would have required more, and I wanted that time to be able to serve God in ministry. So I just put together a little manifesto as a part of my performance appraisal, and I said, these are the reasons why I'd like to stay right where I am for the next few years until I hope to leave my job and go into full-time ministry. I think sometimes we just need to know where God is leading us. And that's why we come together on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday morning. That's why we study. Nathan spoke far too quickly, and he gave David some absolutely terrible advice. Don't let anyone ever say this to you. Oh, God is with you. Now, that may be true. But whatever you have in your mind, do it. Can you imagine? I mean, my mind, your mind, I mean... It's, a, it's a, a trash pit. The things we can imagine or want to do, even if they're not sinful things, are almost always selfish things. Oh, I'd like to go to Hawaii. Yeah, I'd like to go to Hawaii. The Lord's never said go to Hawaii, so I haven't gone. If you've been to Hawaii, praise God. I'm a little envious. But I pray about those things. My wife and I, we actually do pray about where we're going and whether we're going to do something and whether we're going to invest this money, whether we're going to buy this. You know, it could be a car, it could be a sofa. We actually pray through all of our purchases. And you know what? When we do, God has never steered us wrong. And I have lovely things in my home. I really do. God has blessed me abundantly. I'm not sitting here saying I live in a shack. I don't. But I can tell you something. God will show you what you should do Don't take it for granted that just because you want something or you have it in your mind to do something for God, that you should do it. You'll end up in a really bad place. So, not David's fault, but Nathan, he assumed that the Lord would approve of anything that David desired to do. Not true. Listen, David wasn't infallible just because the Lord was with him. The Lord is with you, but that doesn't mean that every decision you make or everything you want is of God. Okay, let's move on. But then something wonderful happens because, you know, it's okay. We sometimes make mistakes. Nathan made a mistake. Actually, the mistake was simple. 
He didn't ask a question of God. And so many times we do this. Look, look what it says. That night, I, I love that. God doesn't usually wait if we get it wrong. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. That's what it means to be a prophet. Saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. And whenever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following uh, the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders or judges over my people. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Notice his throne would be established forever. He would be established in the kingdom, but the throne would be established forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor, reference to Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So imagine Nathan has to come back and say, uh, you remember when I told you do whatever you want, do whatever you have in your mind? Yeah, well, not going to happen. We'll see in a minute. David responded very well to this. David wasn't the problem. Nathan was the problem because he didn't ask God. If you haven't even asked God whether you should study this degree or study for this degree, or go to this school, be involved in this relationship, buy this car, buy this home, move to this place. If you haven't even asked God, hey, listen, then that counsel goes to you. What are you doing? So many Christians, you know, what they, I don't accuse anyone here of living this way, but I'm saying I have met Christians that they're, they're Christians, they're saved, but when it comes to their decisions, God has absolutely no say. They just do what they want and pray God will bless them. That is not the way we should live. So, the Lord revealed to Nathan the prophet his desire to abundantly bless David's descendants. God had a blessing for David. He didn't want David to bless him by building a home or a temple. The Lord corrected Nathan's counsel, and he properly directed David through him. Now, I love that Nathan received immediate correction as the prophet of the Lord. Here's the thing. If you say something or give counsel to someone that you didn't really pray about and you realize you did the wrong thing and said the wrong thing, get in touch with them right away and say, you know what? I want to apologize. I really may have given you bad counsel. It's okay. It's okay. You're not going to be struck dead. When we get it wrong, when we make a mistake, it's okay to admit that. And we need to do that. David received divine correct, uh, excuse me, Nathan received divine correction. David received divine direction. And he did. 
as the king and the servant of the Lord. See, it was David's desire to honor the Lord by building this temple. It was a noble desire. But the word of the Lord concerning David's noble desire was no. I think as Americans, we don't know the meaning of that. I often like to tell people, if you speak Spanish, no is the same in English as it is in Spanish. No. I used to have a little song. I'm not going to sing it, but I used to have a little song I used to sing for the kids when they would kind of like, you know, oh, come on, can't can we do this? And I had a little song I sing about no, not maybe or possibly so. No means no, you know. And I think sometimes we just need to remind, be reminded that God sometimes does say no. Now, the Lord confirmed his will for David. He did so through Nathan. Listen, David had been called to be his shepherd over his people Israel. He'd given David victory over all of his enemies. He'd promised to make David's name famous throughout the earth. These are all good things. He promised to establish his people Israel and protect them from their enemies through David. But then the Lord confirmed his will for David's descendants. Now, this supersedes David. This is more about David's descendants, his, his kingly line. Okay, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord wanted to build David's house. By that, he means his family. He wanted to bless his family. He promised that David's son would be the heir and would build his house. What David wanted to do, his son, we know Solomon, would be the one to do it. Now, how did David react? We'll see very well, but yeah, he must have been a little disappointed, right? But we'll see how he responded to that. He promised that he would establish David's son's kingdom forever. He promised that he would be a faithful, loving father to David's son. This must have brought a lot of comfort. He promised that David's son would not be rejected like Saul. We know that Saul was certainly rebellious. We also know that Solomon was rebellious. But how Saul was treated by the Lord was different than the way Solomon was treated. Different heart, different person, different relationship with God. He also promised that David's house and his kingdom would endure forever. Now, what does that mean? Well, David died. Solomon died. As we go through the first and second chronicles, you'll see that every one of the subsequent descendants of David that ruled from Jerusalem on the throne died, and it went to the next generation and to the next person. So what does it mean? This promise is a messianic promise. It's, it's what it's what developed this, this concept of the son of David. When, in the time of Jesus, they were looking for the son of David, that meant they were looking for a descendant of David whose throne would be established forever. That is the Messiah. The son of David is another term synonymous with Messiah, Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the King, Christ in Greek. So when we talk about this, this is the place in this chapter and also in Second Samuel where God makes a promise to David that the Messiah would be one of his descendants. So the entire rest of Scripture is impacted by this moment where God says, your son will be Messiah. That's what David's being told. And all the Jews of Jesus' time agreed with this. Everyone interpreted it that way. Certainly Jesus understood that and fulfilled that promise. So this is a big moment. This is an important moment in the history of Israel. This is the moment of the messianic promise. God promised that the son of David would be the Messiah and that his house and his kingdom would endure forever. 
That's the promise. And Nathan was faithful to communicate this entire revelation to David. Now, you would think David would be like, oh, man. You ever not win something and you get what we call the booby prize? You know, you just, like, an honorable mention. Geez, thanks. You know, you kind of have an attitude like, oh, honorable mention. They felt bad for me, you know. It shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it is. You know, we wanted first place. We wanted the prize, right? We didn't get it. So that's not at all how David responded. Look at verses 16 through 27. I want to read it in its entirety. It's self-explanatory. But I want you to see the heart of David. Look at the way he responds. He prays. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Remember that place he likes to be? One thing have I desired, O Lord, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing will I seek after. He was, as he says, glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. David's favorite place to be. David's favorite place to be in the presence of the Lord. Well, King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. Oh, Lord God, what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. I love that. You know, your, you know who I am. This is the man who said, create me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation or thy salvation. It's the man who said, my sin is ever present with me. This is the man that understood what a wicked fool he could be. He says, O Lord, you know your servant. O Lord, for the sake of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. See, David didn't feel as if he missed out. He felt that he won the grand prize. There is no one like you, O Lord, and there is no God but you. As we have heard with our own ears, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You, you made your people Israel your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. That's a fancy amen. <laughs> Do as you promised, so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So much better than a physical house. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. O Lord, you are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Lord, have blessed it and it will be blessed forever. Amazing response on the part of David. Would you agree? Most people would say, but, 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 but. You ever, ever tell a kid, you know, that they can't have what they want? You know, like a 42-year-old kid? You know, it's funny when they're little like that, they just don't understand, especially when they're toddlers. They just don't understand. But, but I want it. 
you mean I can't have it? The other day, one of the little ones, I won't mention which one, you know, I hand out the, the gummies after service. Uh, she got gummies, and she's only recently started getting them. And so she ate them, and when she was finished, she looked around, and I guess some of the kids still had them, right? So she came up to me. She can't really talk. She's giving me the, the hairy eyeball, saying, I want more gummies. What's this all about? And I said, no, 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 I have to ask your dad. I have to, you know, I think I, she already got some. Yeah, yeah, she already She started crying. Because her understanding is, I want gummies. What's the problem? I'm not done eating them. I want a second bag. And we look at that and we laugh and we say, oh, how cute that is, until that child grows up and becomes 35, 40, 45, 55, and they act the same way. I wanted my gummies. But, you know, that's, a, that's not the heart attitude of a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God is never disappointed when God says no, because God always has something better. Amen? Amen. I mean, think about it. David wanted to build a house for God, and God is saying, Psst, don't worry about that. I'm going to build a house through you. The Messiah is going to come through you. I don't think David would say, yeah, that's all right, but I'd really rather build you a house. I don't think that was how he responded. We see that here. It's very clear. I love that he approached the Lord. You know, he's praising the Lord. He approaches him with humility, transparency. Oh, he was always such a transparent worshiper. David praised the Lord for his great love for his people Israel and surrendered himself to the Lord's will for his life, and he did so with faith and thanksgiving. What a wonderful example David becomes. Now, I'm just going to give you a little preview. We're not going to go there. Just going to, before we close, I just want to mention one thing. Do you know that after this moment, and this will come up in future studies, David spent the majority of his reign, the rest of his life, making extensive preparations for the temple to be built. You see, what happened is God said, you can't build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. You know what he said? Great. I'm going to get him everything he needs. So when he builds it, he has everything he needs. David didn't really take no for an answer in that sense, but God allowed him to prepare for the temple to be rebuilt, even though, or to be built, even though he didn't allow him to build it. And that just goes to show you the heart of a true worshiper. David was a man after God's own heart. He assembled all the necessary workers, provided all the building supplies. We see that in 1 Chronicles 22 and 28. This will become apparent. David charged his son Solomon to build the temple once he became king, and he, drew, he truly desired to build the temple. But David's career, we'll find out later, David's career as a warrior, and he was a great and mighty warrior, God's warrior, but his career as a warrior disqualified him from building the temple. God didn't want a man of blood to build the temple. Solomon was not a warrior. He built the temple. This was God's will. So, you know, maybe, maybe you're a warrior. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be called to do what Solomon did. You know, I'm okay with being a warrior, to be honest with you. I'm okay with that. Maybe a prayer warrior, right? That's what David was. That's who David is. And yes, he has blood on his hands. He killed a lot of people. He was a great, mighty warrior. But that disqualified him from building the temple. He, the Lord wanted someone with clean hands to build the temple. That was his will. And David confirmed that the Lord had called Solomon to build the temple. Instead, he accepted this as God's will. David commanded all the leaders of Israel to support Solomon in building the temple before he died. He also provided Solomon with the necessary plans for building the temple. Basically, David did everything except 
start building. Like when, when David died, the shovel went in the ground. You know, you know, you hear about these shovel-ready projects? Like it was like ready to go as soon as Solomon became king. It just goes to show you the heart of this man as a worshiper. David provided Solomon with the instructions for the temple priests and the sacred articles. He had everything mapped out. Now, one thing we do know in chapter 28, verse 19 of this book, that David actually received all of the details of the plan to build the temple directly from the Lord. So he's the architect, the engineer. He's the one that puts the whole thing together. He's just not the builder. That's all. And there may be one thing in your life that God isn't doing, and you're thinking, but I want my gummies. Listen, I'm going to say it again. God's will for your life is what's best for your life. Best you surrender your life to him and experience all of his many blessings and stop trying to do what he hasn't called you to do. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so You have such wonderful things in store for each of us if we simply know your will and submit to it. And whatever it is we think we should do or or trying to do, it pales in comparison to your perfect will, your good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. Help us to surrender our hearts to you. May we know your will, may we surrender to your will, and may we do your will. We pray in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.